Grab your Bible. We're going to be in Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Let me tell you what this passage is about. We're going to be in one verse, just verse 9. If you're a baseball fan, you know the name Yogi Berra. One of the great players of all time. One of the greatest catchers of all time. Yogi Berra was a New York Yankee. And uh, he was famous for a number of things, not just being a great player. He was famous at what uh, baseball players call chatter. You know what chatter is? Any baseball players in here? Yeah, I'm not a big, I never played baseball. I was always afraid I was going to get hit with that little round hard ball. In fact, I did playing t-ball. Coach line drive me, uh, I think it was like the first week of practice, in the mouth, woke up on the bench, my teeth in my hand. I said, no more, give me a helmet and a face mask and I'll play football instead. But uh, I do know this about baseball. Chatter is what they do when uh, they either want to get their own team fired up you know, hey, pitch, come on, pitch, come on, pitch, come on, pitch. And you're trying to encourage your own pitcher. It's that, you know, it's that repetitive, that repetitive chatter. That's why I call it what they do. Or if they want to uh, discourage the other team, they say things like, uh, hey, bada, 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 bada. You know what's wrong? Hey, bada, bada, bada. Swing, right? Well, Yogi Berra was, uh, was an expert at this. He wasn't just a great catcher. He was an expert at uh, throwing off the other team because he had a unique position. He got to sit right below the batter, right, being the catcher. And he got to mess with everybody who stepped up to the plate. And uh, he was famous for doing this. And uh, there's a story of one World Series where they were playing, playing against the Braves, not the Atlanta Braves, but the Milwaukee Braves. And uh, Hank Aaron steps up to the plate. And Hank Aaron, being this great hitter that he was, uh, you can just imagine that Yogi was trying to throw him off his game however he could. And so Yogi gets this idea that here's what I'm going to do. Uh, as Hank steps up and Hank is uh, swinging his bat, getting warmed up, getting settled into the batter's box, and he's eyeing the pitcher, and the pitcher's just about ready to throw the fastball down the middle, Yogi says, hey, hey, Hank, you're not holding the bat right. You got the bat wrong. You're supposed to have the insignia on the bat facing you so you can read it, hoping to throw off, if just for a moment, Hank Aaron, Okay. Story goes that just then the pitch comes from the pitcher right down the middle and Hank Aaron swings and knocks it all the way over the fence into left field bleachers. Makes his signature trot around first, second, and third. Uh, slows down as he gets to home to touch home plate and uh, stops long enough next to Yogi and says, I wasn't up here to read. Uh, Yogi's attempt to distract a great batter like Hank Aaron failed. I think sometimes, well, maybe more often than we hope, more often than we would like, in the church, Satan is able to distract us. He's able to get us to swing and miss. We don't stay on our game. We don't watch the pitch all the way to the bat. Even if sometimes, just for a brief moment, he's able to get our attention, he's able to distract us long enough to throw us off our game. In the book of Titus, we've seen a reoccurring theme. The reoccurring theme from Paul to Titus and all those on the island of Crete in this new church was that their life needed to measure up with their faith. That their life couldn't build walls. Their life had to build. Look back in chapter 1, Paul said this, that he would spend his life for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth. And then he tacked on to the end here what has come to be, in my mind, one of the great themes of this book. 
The knowledge of truth, which is, by the way, according to godliness. His point being that I'm going to spend my life helping people to understand that this, this good news, this gospel, this gospel truth, it transforms, it changes, it causes, or it should, godliness in our lives. It causes us to look more like our Father. And really, they're inseparable. You can't have one without the other. Our faith necessarily causes change in humanity if it is authentic faith. He goes on in chapter 1 to tell us that leaders, those who would be called to be leaders in the church, their life must line up with their position. Their life cannot disqualify them from their testimony in the church and in the community. And we got this whole list of ways that their life could, in fact, disqualify them. And many times it does disqualify us from being leaders in God's church because our life doesn't line up publicly with our faith or our position. He goes on in chapter 2 to say that not just our leaders, but our laity, the life of those of us in the church, in the pews, our life must line up with our faith among relation to society have to build bridges with our life and not walls. You remember that? That because of what God has done in our life, we can't live antagonistically against this world. We're not at odds with this world. We don't live as enemies to this world, those who we've been called to take the good news to. God would have us be his tool to take that news into the dark world, push back the darkness with the light, be salt in this world, and carry that good news, namely about his mercy, his grace, his benevolence, and ultimately his holiness, and spread that light into the rest of the world. Now, if he says in chapter 3, if our life doesn't paint that picture in deed as it does in word, if we're not gentle, if we're not kind, if we're not long-suffering, patient, if we live against the world and not for the world's salvation then we build walls, not bridges. And so in each chapter he shows us how on every level, from the leadership to the laity, from within the church to outside the church, our lives can disqualify us from doing that which God would have do with our lives. Namely, to use us for his glory to spread the light into the darkness. Our lives can disqualify us. Not just that, he's going to say now in verse 9 of chapter 3. He's going to say, sometimes, even if our lives line up publicly on the outside, we check off all this other stuff that he's been going through and we're doing okay. If Satan isn't able to say is useless without profit or worthless. Look at verse 9 of chapter 3. On the heels of verse 8, last week he said this, These things are good and profitable for men. Specifically, he was talking about our attitude towards society, that if we live like this, if our life lines up, builds bridges, not walls, if we're able to live righteously in this world, then our lives won't be a distraction to those who look in at us as believers, and God will be glorified ultimately. He sums up that section by saying these things are good and profitable for all men. All men meaning both non-Christians and Christians. He said this, this works across the board. 
You become profitable this way. Verse 9, he's going to tell us how we become unprofitable. But, but, avoid foolish controversies. The word avoid there is literally the word, uh, could be translated to shun. It literally means to turn your back to. Turn your back to. So, Paul says, we should be profitable towards all men. But listen, we can become foolish. And here's how. If we do not avoid something. If we do not avoid something. And now he goes into a short list of things that were unprofitable and worthless. Unprofitable and worthless. Did you notice these are both financial terms? It's financial terminology. In the economy of the kingdom... In the economy of God's grace and mercy, in the economy of Him using us to evangelize this world, to push back the darkness with the light, in God's economy, He would use us. But if we fail to avoid the things that He's going to list here in a short list of verse 9, Paul will sum up our lives by saying, we cause ourselves to be unprofitable, meaning we make no profit. There is no gain. And we become worthless. There is no worth to us. It's like putting all your money in this stock and finding out that it it gained you nothing. It's like putting all your money into this this bank account and finding that you, you turn no profit. Paul says that perhaps God looks at some of us and because of the things we fail to avoid, Satan would distract us if he hasn't already disqualified us And now in the end, the summary of our life, or maybe a portion of our life, becomes that we are unprofitable and worthless in the economy of the kingdom. Now, none of us want that. All of us who serve in the Lord's army want to be profitable. We all want to turn a profit for the king. When he returns, we all want to have uh, interest on his investment, if you will, his investment in us, his investment of grace into us. Now, let's see how... Is the word we get moron from. There you go. If you ever want to use the word moron in church, here you go. He says we must avoid, number one, foolish controversies. Controversies specifically are things that are debatable. It's the word that connotates something that we might argue about. It becomes controversial. It is, in essence, a a truth that we look at and we bounce back and forth, and it becomes, at some point, it becomes controversial or debatable. Now, in Paul's mind, from the first century in his day, all the way into our day, this can happen in the church. That truth, truth can be looked at long enough and hard enough, and taken by some out of context, uh, there's, a, there's a hundred ways this can happen, but at some point we can cross a line to where we don't become profitable in our study, but we become unprofitable in the sense that we, we cross the line into a controversial looking at the truth. And he says, in the end, you become like a moron, we would say in English. It, it's foolish. Now let me say this. He's not saying here that the doctrine, that this false teaching specifically is what's foolish. Although any false teaching could be qualified as foolishness. But what he's saying here is that the focus upon it, 
that the believers, there's a couple more in his list, things that kind of fall under this category of foolish controversies. Look at what he says in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies is the first one he lists here. Genealogies, we don't fully understand. Uh, we, don't, we don't identify with this as Paul's readers would have. In Paul's day, first century and even before, uh, the Jewish culture spent a lot of time examining the genealogies of both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Uh, you find genealogies in Matthew, the genealogies of Jesus. Now let me say this. The genealogies themselves, Paul is not saying, are a bad thing. Okay? They are profitable. They are worth our study. They are worth investigation. But in Paul's day, there were those who were so... Uh, so legalistic in their mindset. That means that they were so focused on the letter of the law. They were so focused on uh, uh, what we might call looking for the Bible code in the genealogies. And they would go through these genealogies trying to uh, find somehow their family lineage. They would, uh, they would find somehow their own uh, bolstering of their own selfish uh, evaluation of their own life. They would find it in these genealogies and it became... It became worthless. They would study so long in these genealogies and spend so much time on what Paul would say is a minor issue, they would make them major issues for all the wrong reasons. And so we don't identify with this directly. We don't, we don't have anybody out here who's going through genealogies and they're spreading it around and saying uh, that I've got this or that, uh, that, you know, look at this truth that I've found and it's a, you know, we're not teaching it in our church. We don't specifically deal with that. But let me say this. Uh, we have our own, okay? Genealogies. But when they go to the extent that they're becoming a detriment to the church and to you as an individual, well, they become, they become foolishness. And we have to avoid them. We have to avoid them. Lest Satan use it to focus all of our attention and distract us from what we're trying to accomplish in a greater sense with the kingdom. And it was happening. In Paul's day, genealogies were taking guys out left and right. They were spinning their wheels on these things for so long and with such effort that they were missing the boat on the Great Commission. And Paul says, we can't let that happen. Satan will disqualify you if he, won't, if, he, if he has the opportunity. If he doesn't have the opportunity to do that, it's almost like he sneaks in. It's like this spiritual sleight of hand that he uses. And if he can, for however long he can, he'll distract you. He'll keep you busy in this nonsense. He'll keep you busy so deep in controversial, debatable uh, issues where there is no clear biblical answer that it becomes detrimental to the church as a whole. Look at the next word he uses. He says, it also brings strife, verse 9. It also brings strife. Strife is a word who connotates self-centered rivalry or contentiousness about truth. It's a word that, uh, it's really a result of the former two. Anywhere that these foolish controversies cross the line into causing strife among the body, he says we've got to avoid it. ...to get bogged down in the letter of the law. Not only did they get bogged down in examining the Mosaic law, but they got bogged down in adding to and distra uh, distracting from the law itself. And so Paul recognized this in the church. He dealt with it throughout his whole ministry. And he says to this young minister on the island of Crete, Titus, listen... Don't let the church go down this road. You have to turn your back on some of these things. Lest Satan distract the church long enough that they get nothing done. We have to avoid this type of foolishness. 
this legalism that leads nowhere. Where men and women focus so much on uh, finding new ways to fulfill the legal uh, code of the law that they miss the greater things of the kingdom. And in the end, he says, if we don't avoid those things, we become twofold, very plain, very direct. We become unprofitable. We turn no profit for the king. What sort of profit does the king want? Souls. Souls, growth in his disciples, and his own glory and his own fame. We turn no profit for the king. And in fact, we become really worthless in the economy of spreading the good news. In sports, we call this misdirection. Satan loves to use it. We send one guy this way, and the ball goes this way. We'll have you focus on this so long and so hard down for his team because we're so busy over here. We've been misled, misdirected. In the military, we call this a sneak attack. It's a Trojan horse, if you will. In one through three, we got lists of things that disqualify us from our witness. In verse 9 of chapter 3, Paul tells us that there are also things that can distract us from the big picture, namely God using his church to expose the world to his grace, mercy, and kindness, his benevolence, and holiness. Now, I think, you, I think you're following me here. I think, you're, I think you're right with me because, unfortunately, this happens to many of us. This happens to many of us. I want to give you some practical advice. If you want to write these down, jot these down, and we'll conclude. Number one, know when your search for truth crosses the line into foolish debate. We all have this desire to search for biblical truth, to know God's word better, to understand his theology better, to understand doctrine better, to understand truth better. That is good and that is right. But apparently... Apparently, there is, there is a time and a place where we cross from wise investigation into foolishness in Paul's mind. Now, he's not talking about strange about to such a degree that it becomes controversial. That word for controversy uh, has this underlying idea of opinion behind it. And so you see the person who, who instigate this, instigates this, it becomes controversial in part because it is based on their opinion alone, if not in full. Know when your search for truth crosses the line into foolish debate, number one. Number two, recognize collateral damage as an indication you have crossed that line. Recognize collateral damage as an indication you have crossed that very line. When strife starts to become obvious in the debate, in the search for whatever truth you're searching for, take that as an indication that you may have, if not you have definitely, crossed the line into a foolish controversy, as Paul would call it. Be aware, the point is, be aware of the pain that you may be causing around you. And if you're causing that pain, understand that it cannot be. It cannot be 
in line with how God would have us act in the church. Amen? Number three, keep tabs on your investment. Keep tabs on your investment. question you can ask yourself is, is this any profit to the kingdom? Is your search in whatever area of truth you're searching, is it being profitable to the kingdom at large? If not, what would we do with our own money? We'd withdraw it. There's a story uh, comes out of Russia. They were, uh, they were starting to realize that in a, in a slow economy, in a bad economy, in what uh, comes, some call the recession, that uh, businesses were losing a lot of their property to their own workers. Businesses were losing a lot of their uh, small but, but property worth things not to people breaking in, but to their own employees sneaking stuff out. So here's what they did. They ordered that they would put a, uh, they would put a state guard in many of these businesses. And there was this, a story of this large lumber yard in Russia, and they posted this, this guard outside of the lumber yard. And he became really a fixture of this one business. And he, uh, he got to know the guys pretty well. And so as they would come and go in their shifts, he, he knew them by name. He started to realize that there was this one guy that he had gotten to know pretty well. Every evening as he was finishing up his shift, he would leave with a wheelbarrow full of bags, full of stuff. And so uh, he decided, okay, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop this guy and find out this is my job. I mean, he could be, could be stealing stuff in here. And so he says, hey, uh, Sam, let me, uh, let me stop you. That's not a Russian name, is it, Sam? Probably not. Vladimir. Yeah, uh, Vladimir, <laughs> uh, you, you got these wheelbarrows full of these big black bags of stuff. What do you, I mean, what do you got? Come on, I'm not, I'm not an idiot. You got to be, we've become friends. I know you. Listen, I, I'm not going to tell anybody, this is between you and I, what's going on here? What are you sneaking out of this place? Vladimir looked at him and he kind of gave him a half grin. And he says, wheelbarrows. <laughs> wheelbarrows. The guard was so intent on searching through the sawdust that he was hiding something in here and he was going to catch him that he didn't realize the guy was taking wheelbarrow after wheelbarrow every night. Um, It seems to me that uh, it is very easy for us who are well-intentioned in God's church to do uh, that we do a good job of evaluating our own life for blatant, obvious public sin that might disqualify us from the work of the kingdom? It seems to me that we, we, there are many of us who do a good job of that. But maybe we don't notice the wheelbarrows leaving the shop. Maybe we don't notice Satan sneaking in, and if not disqualifying us outrightly, just distracting us long enough with just enough nonsense to keep us off task we were singing the song uh, earlier and there's a line in the song um, that made a reference it was a prayer God give us the lost give us the lost and it occurred to me maybe it was a conviction of the Lord that that's not uh, a large enough part of my heart that's not a large enough cry of my spirit that I don't beg God for the lost and I wondered 
is Satan getting wheelbarrow after wheelbarrow by me. Keeping me so focused on other peripheral things, things that seem worth my time at some point, but at some point they've crossed into just wasting my time to such a degree that I've become unprofitable and worthless in the economy of spreading God's grace, His kindness, His benevolence. Number one is holiness to a lost and dying world. It can happen. It happens all the time. Let's pray.